Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. We're kicking the new year off in style with one of our favorite guests. And I think as it is an election year, we're going to have him on monthly if he, if his busy schedule can swing it. Uh, Mr. Charles Pierce is the author of four books. His last one, highly recommend, is called Idiot America. And he's been a working journalist since 1976. He lives near Boston and has three children and uh, also writes a great blog for Esquire.com. I stumbled on Charlie years ago. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how, but when he referred to Paul Ryan from Wisconsin as a zombie-eyed granny starver, I immediately fell in love with his work. Charlie, how are you? Happy New Year. What's happening, Paul? Happy New Year to you. Well, we're, uh, we are enjoying the New Year. We don't have a lot of snow, uh, but there's still time. And uh, we were uh, gifted with an appearance by... Uh, our president, Joe Biden, last week, the uh, uh, the government came up with $1 billion to rebuild the John Blotnick Bridge. John Blotnick, of course, was a great Northeast Minnesota DFLer, and uh, they built it in 64, and it's time to put up a new one. So he uh, came that's, to... Uh, that's, the one that, that's the one that connects Duluth and Superior, right? That's correct. Yeah, it's a beautiful bridge. Okay. You got a nice view of the Lake Superior when you're driving over. And he uh, had his event at Earthrider Brewing, which is uh, owned by a friend of mine. So a fellow named Tim Nelson. So I got a, I got a hold of Tim after to congratulate him. And I said, uh, how did it go? He said, great, with the exception of all the uh, emails from the MAGAs. Out there in Duluth Superior, but you know, I, I told him I said uh, you know there used to be a time when a president came to your town, everybody regardless of uh, their po- political affiliations would get out and celebrate, with the exception of course of uh, being Dallas, Texas, but uh, but we were uh, happy to see him, and of course the uh, Pete Stauber, who's the state uh, the Republican state rep, originally voted against. Uh, money for that bill, but of course was there when they, uh, when they started delivering the dough. It's funny. Yeah, how that there's works. a lot of that. Going, there's a lot of that going around. The people who, who voted against the, uh, the American recovery plan and, and the inflation reduction act who are more than happy to show up and take credit, you know, for, in front of the locals. Yeah. All the, every time it's like, it's like clockwork, but I do need to ask you, Charlie, are you now, or have you ever been a member of the Chinese Communist Party? <laughs> well, Senator Cotton, <laughs> I, de- I declined. I declined. I declined to answer that question on the grounds that my Irish grandmother will rise from the earth and kill me in my sleep <laughs> if I do. Uh, yeah, that was an amazing moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean. I like, are you freaking kidding me? I, you know, I mean, I know. Dude, bro- dude I'm from freaking Singapore. How many times? You want to see yeah. my driver's license? Yeah. Oh, my God. It just gets more embarrassing uh, as as the days go on. I mean, what's the latest? Uh, you know, I read uh, Charlie Pearson, Esquire.com religiously. But uh, what's coming up? What's the next thing you're going to write about? Because there's so much we're going to talk about tonight. But uh, 
My God. Well, I'm going to go to I'm going to go to Washington next week and sit in on the oral arguments uh, in the uh, whether Trump should be on the ballot uh, case. Interesting. So I like I, I like going I like going to the Supreme Court. It's, it's like going to like Temple. You know, I wasn't well, raised Jewish, but I imagine that going to see the Supreme Court is like going to Temple. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so I, that's what I'm going to do. I'll probably stay down there a couple of days and see what you know what fresh hell is coming out of, of the House of Representatives. But I had a friend of mine. Uh, who uh, became an attorney and actually spoke uh, in front of the Supreme Court, geez, it must have been 25, 30 years ago. Uh, and he was uh, proud, he's a deadhead, proudly wearing his Jerry Garcia tie uh, before the justices. <laughs> <laughs> well, he doesn't have to worry about any of those, about any of those stiffs realizing it. Oh, my God. Well, and uh, when you're there, are you going to be able to ask any of the judges, take them on any fishing trips? No, I don't have the, I don't have I don't have the checkbook for that. You know, you you gotta have you gotta have a couple of bill in the bank, couple of bill in the bank to be able to you know take <laughs> Samuelito out to kill some fish. Speaking of the Supreme Court, uh, I'm I'm a little uh, not as aware as I should have been, but you did a great article on it that I that I just uh, read yesterday. But tell the people out there in the Wall of Power Radio Land in. Uh, on AM 950 radio about how the whole Dobbs decision came about. Well, I mean, it was the, you know, the decision that, you know, the, you know, most of the uh, long march through the judiciary that conservatism took uh, was aimed at overturning and it was overturned in the case of a, of a, a women's health clinic in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, but, the interesting development this week was that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court agreed to hear a challenge to that state's anti-abortion law, uh, which dates back, I'm doing this from memory now, uh, it dates back to 1982. There are abortion restrictions, and they're being challenged now by, by pro-choice groups. And not only did the Supreme Court accept the case for judgment, which was very much a surprise, but it also in the in there was a one of the justices in his uh, supporting uh, a concurrence, excuse me, in his concurrence, absolutely demolished Alito's argument that prevailed in the Dobbs case in the United States Supreme Court. I just hmm. absolutely destroyed the historical basis for it. Well, it, it, and this whole concept of originalism and the Constitution, uh, let's take a little left turn here and talk about uh, Trump being denied on some of the ballots in some of these states. Now, my fear is there is that I would just as soon have them uh, be on the ballot in every state and just trounce them at the ballot box. But what is your, what's your feeling on the whole thing? I have, you know, there, first of all, on the basis of the Constitution, he's disqualified. I mean, right. the, the history of and the plain text 
of the 14th Amendment leaves no doubt that what he did was an insurrection and that, therefore, he is disqualified from any holding any office under the United States. Right. Okay, that's, that's not even arguable. Uh, as far as the politics of it goes, I'm less inclined to be concerned about the political fallout than I used to be. Because it seems like, you know, a lot of, a lot of state politicians, secretaries of state and so forth, are willing to take the flat for it and are waiting for a decision to see if they can. Mm-hmm. And because I think if, if the Supreme Court refuses, you know, declines his argument and points out that, you know, he doesn't have a leg to stand on constitutionally and allows Colorado to keep him off the ballot and allows Maine to keep him off the ballot, uh, I think you'll see a flood of other states. Michigan has one on the rails already. Uh, and I think you'll, you know, I think you'll, you will see a, now I don't know what happens after that, but I mean, to me, I've always thought, and I don't know the legalities behind this. I always thought a decent compromise was letting him appear on the Republican primary ballot, but not on the state, uh, not on the, the national, the, uh, general election ballot of the fall. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause I can, I can see, you know, where, uh, where you can make an argument that the Republican Party is, you know, has the right to nominate, you know, whoever the hell it wants. Right. As long as we can keep it, keep that person from, keep that, that Republican Party from inflicting that person on the rest of us. The Republican Party. There, well, if there is such a thing anymore, right? Well, it's only a, it's only a, you know, a bag of free-floating grievances at this point. But right. yeah, there's no, no consistent Republican Party anymore. Not, well, a, you, not a governing party, anyway. Well, the way I look at it, uh, Charlie, is that we're really an institute in a powerful death penalty. <laughs> to yes, the... I've, uh, <laughs> I've, spent three weeks, I've spent three weeks trying to get that sentence straight in my mind, and I've, now, I've just given up. I... <laughs> It's, uh, it's like it's like it's like it's like the former president there. It's like he's got some kind of spark gap in his head. Yeah, you know those spark gaps from the old horror movies mm-hmm. where they had the two poles and the and the electricity goes between them. <laughs> I think that's the way his brain is functioning now. Oh my god! It's you know in a strange perverse way, I give the guy a little credit because he's got to be under incredible pressure, right? I mean, that he can even roll out of the fetal position and get out of well, bed I gotta, in the I, gotta, I, have, I have to give I, I have to give his coronary arteries a lot of credit. <laughs> well, it, the, guy's in, the guy's in terrible shape, number one. And he is under all that, you know, all that pressure, so. And, and I would hate to get a, be a bird on the wall and get a peek into uh, uh, the inner workings of the uh, uh, Donald-Melania uh, personal relationship on top of it. I can't imagine that's a walk in the park. Well, I, I, I mean, I think she's very disappointed that, you know, they, I think she's very, defo- I think she's very disappointed in the performance of his coronary arteries. 
<laughs> I think she was kind of counting. I think she was kind of counting on him, and they let her down so far. <laughs> Maybe she'll end up marrying E. Jean Carroll and finally get to get the buddy that Donald promised her. Oh, I'll we, tell you what. I I because I I have done so much work for Esquire. Uh, I sort of am familiar with E. Jean Carroll, although she was in the generation of Esquire writers like ahead of me. But all I've learned is that he messed with the wrong female writer. This is a a smart, savvy, very tough woman. Yeah. Well, it's... uh, I mean, she wrote a book with Hunter Thompson, for God's sakes. Really? What what book was that? Yeah, you think she's a... Think she's afraid of Donald Trump? <laughs> We've got Charlie Pierce out for the whole show, the Wall of Power Radio Hour tonight. Uh, we're going to uh, go to commercial and be back with Mr. Pierce in uh, just a few minutes. So don't change the channel. Welcome back to the second set of the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzen. Our guest for the whole show tonight, and hopefully uh, we make this a monthly thing, we call it Checkpoint Charlie with the esteemed journalist, Charles Pierce, who writes for Esquire.com. Charlie, it must have been, now you started writing in 1976. Was that for the Boston Phoenix? No, that was for a thing called Worcester Magazine. Okay. Uh, it was a startup, which uh, it, it was a startup in my hometown, uh, and for two years I was like the only writer they had. Uh, mm. So I, I got to I got to write anything. I got to like an absolute free range. Uh, and wow. it was From there that I went to the, it was from there that I went to the Phoenix. You know, it's amazing. Uh, let's talk about you know the. Uh all of the media outlets that are that you know that are shrinking and and uh, becoming obsolete and going away. Uh, let's talk about what's going on with uh, uh, a great magazine you wrote for, Sports Illustrated. What the hell is the story on that? Well, that that's a tragedy. Uh, you know, it, it, I'm 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 sure that you know it made. I'm sure it made you know the same mistakes that. Early on, that you know, every every print publication did as regards to the internet, mm-hmm. um, but its its demise is completely linked to the moment where Time Inc. sold it, and then it went down a succession of you know ridiculous owners, uh, you know, down to you know whatever the one is that. That cleaned house uh, uh, most recently, uh, and that's the, you know that's what's happening. Uh, you know, you got you got you know private equity goons, you know, destroying small local newspapers, you know, looting them for all they have, and then and then throwing away the you know th- eating all the fruit and throwing away the rind. Uh, and it's even hitting the L.A. Times now. I mean, that's, yeah. the L.A. Times was a, the L.A. Times was a dreadnought. I remember covering uh, Celtics Laker playoff games uh, in Los Angeles, and as part of the package at your hotel, 
they would deliver the L.A. Times for you every day. Mm-hmm. They used to drop it outside of my hotel room door and it would wake me up. Wow. It was like somebody dropped a cannonball. Yeah. You know, outside that, of my door. That and much that was content. all because that was all because of the classified real estate ads in and around California, in, in mm-hmm. and around Los Angeles. And once the classified market dried up, that was, you know, that was the beginning of the end of a lot of a lot of major newspapers as well. Yeah, it's sad to see. I remember when I was a, a you know kid, young teen, you know, and I would play every sport uh, for a sport for every season. You know, my go-to uh, magazines were Sports Illustrated and uh, Mad Magazine. There you go. You, that's a, that's you a want, well-rounded. That's a well-rounded. That's some well-rounded self-education there. <laughs> you know, I don't think people realized. I don't think our parents realized how subversive Mad Magazine really was. Oh, I mean, it was. It was. It was everybody's. It just as as Sports Illustrated was, a lot of people, including my own, uh, introduction to you know stylish writing for magazines. Uh, Mad was our our introduction to American subversion. Yeah, you know, I was I had a uh, I did an interview which hasn't aired yet with Peter Stample from the Holy Modal Rounders. A great interview. Talked about the first time he saw Bob Dylan at Gertie's Folk City in 1962 through the window, and he said what really. Uh, sparked a curiosity and interest in Bob Dylan for Peter Stample was it was the he was a you know Peter was a big old uh, folk and blues guy but when he heard Bob Dylan here was a young folk and blues guy that was singing those old songs in a rock and roll cadence and uh, he knew he was you know witnessing some, something that, that that became very great uh, well that's the uh, that's that that's an interesting that's a very interesting insight, which I've never heard before. Yeah. Uh, but it certainly points the way to what, you know, to the explosion that came in 1965 and 1966 with bringing it all back home, Highway 61 and Blonde on Blonde. Yeah. I mean, Bob Dylan was singing rock and roll on a folk guitar and he just plugged it in. Yeah. I, uh, I, had a, I did a gig several years ago in Ashland, Wisconsin, with Spider John Kerner, who was there at 65 when Dylan went electric. And uh, John said, you know, they had all heard the rehearsals. John, who's, you know, one of America's greatest folk singers, absolutely loved it. But he said, uh, uh, he said the, uh, the myth about people booing, he said that wasn't <clears throat> really, is that he wasn't paying attention to, but he did say people were crying, and I and I figured probably some of it was just from joy, and some was probably revulsion from the, you know, the old folk art. Of course, the story is that Pete Seeger wanted to take an axe to the, uh, to the cables and uh, cut off the sound system, but I think was wrestled to the ground by Albert Grossman. That's the story I heard. I wish I would have been there. But you know, what, I, what always bothered me about about that story is Pete had to know that if he went at the cables with an axe, he was going to electrocute himself. <laughs> you know, I, did, I heard another, I, I had the pleasure of meeting Pete at the tribute to Woody Guthrie in uh, 1996 in Cleveland, Ohio, and spent... Uh, okay, and, uh, I, I'm, I'm teasing, of course. He was a, he was a great man, and, he, and the host oh, yeah. never thanked him. 
Yeah, in fact, I just uh, saw somebody sent me an article from the Labor newspaper here in Duluth in 1941, and Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger were traveling as the Almanac Singers and actually did a gig in downtown Duluth. It was called the Playmore Ballroom. And I went and I uh, tracked down the the address, and I, I found the building uh, that it was, and... Uh, I've heard, and then I heard this a related story twice: once from Nora Guthrie and once from Pete Seeger. But you know, they they talk about Finlanders, of which I am one. That uh, they're very, uh, very non-emotional. In fact, they say the Finlander that uh, loved his wife so much he almost told her. <clears throat> but they played up. <laughs> but they played up at a a lumber camp, and. Uh, you know, Woody was a, a, not, not a bad fiddle player, and Pete's playing guitar and banjo. So they play all night long for all these Finnish lumberjacks, and they're getting ready to pack up and go the next day. And, and the camp foreman says to Pete, he goes, where are you guys going? And Pete goes, well, we played all night last night. We got absolutely no response. And the foreman goes, what do you mean? They loved you. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, speaking how of, did, how did you how did you how did you manage to avoid that ethnic stoicism? <laughs> it was, you know, I came of age in the seventies, man. And, I uh, mean, was there was there was there a Norwegian somewhere in your background? <laughs> Just a lot of Finns. I think it's time. I think it's time to go to ancestry and find out if a if a Nor if a Norwegian or a Swede snuck in there early on. Well, you know, I. I did have my uh, my nephew gave us all uh, the DNA kits uh, several Christmases ago, and it, I did find out I have thirty three percent Irish blood. Really? Yeah, which explains. Well, I mean, I mean, if you know that the Vikings were the first people to invade Ireland, mm-hmm. so it's entirely possible that long ago a guy with, you know, horns on his helmet and one in his pants, you know, <laughs> fell in love with a fell in love with fell in love with a Colleen outside Dublin and <laughs> produced and produced a Mecca. <laughs> Well, I, uh, I I wear it all proudly. I, um, you know, I was I played in Reykjavik, Iceland, uh, in two thousand. Uh, there was a tour that the Minnesota Department of Tourism were doing, and uh, we ended up over there for four days. But it was they say that uh, the you know the oldest genes when when you're studying that stuff can be found in Iceland. And I remember one night in particular, we were just. Uh, it, uh, we we got a, we had a, our regular gig at this ballroom at a hotel, and then we uh, set up a few gigs uh, at a few clubs around town. At the drinking there is it rivals Russia for the uh, the amount of uh, alcoholism. In fact, they refer to Iceland as uh, three hundred thousand alcoholics clinging to a rock. But but we'd walk out of these uh, the bars and there would be lines of cabs because they've got some of the strictest drunk driving laws in in the world and uh, you'd see you know uh, the rich ladies with the beautiful black dresses and white pearls stumbling down the street with the homeless and we were um, get a, got a bite to eat at one of the food trucks and there was a woman there I'll never forget I looked into her eyes. 
And I swear to God, it was like looking into the eyes of a wolf. It was so stunning. It was like you were looking back hundreds and hundreds of years. Have you ever been? Have you ever been to Iceland? No, I, I have friends who have been who who find who say it's like the most remarkable place on earth. It's yeah. It looks like you're on the surface of the moon, and uh, there's a lot. One of the places we played had been. It was built in like 1750, and it's where a lot of the <clears throat> Christian missionaries would set up shop, and they said, almost to the man, they all ended up going insane. I mean, you can imagine Iceland in 1750 being some sort of missionary proselytizing to whoever the hell was walking the streets and paths back then. But it was really fun. Very progressive place as well. Yeah, and of course, was was the canary in the coal mine in the the economic uh, catastrophe in 2008. Yeah. It was was the first place. That that was the place where, where... a mob hunted one of the one of the bankers down at the opera and threw things at him as he was going into the opera house. Oh, I'm all for it. Yeah, and I suspect <laughs> you know, I suspect, I suspect as 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 the police reports usually have it, alcohol was involved, but it was righteous <laughs> oh. anger, so that's okay. Well, you know, they have a, I, and I heard because I had a couple of musician buddies that had played there before, and they said, uh, you're going to be encounter a drink called Brennavin, and it's referred to lovingly in Iceland as Black Death. Uh, and the only way I, <clears throat> the only way I could describe it, it's a cross between Jägermeister and Turpentine. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, yeah, but it packs a punch. It packs a punch. When we were coming back on the plane, about a seven-hour plane ride back to uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul, by then, a few days in, we'd kind of developed a bit of a taste for it. And so we were uh, drinking all the way there and all the way back, and, and we asked the uh, these lovely, gorgeous uh, flight attendants if we could have a, a little more Brennavin. And right before we uh, got to the airport, she said, you drank it all. <laughs> but we did sneak a few of the little bottles, those uh, airport bottles. Oh, they, back they, they, ca- for they friends. carry it on the airlines. They carry it oh, on yeah. the airlines, too, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't know, I, like, like stuff, you made, stuff you made in your backyard. No, but we did. It's funny you should bring that up because we went, We met these uh, this blues band, these four guys that came down to see us play, and then they invited us to a jam session after the gig was over at about 1 a.m., so we were driving to wherever they rehearsed, and this guy said, hey, stop here. I've got to pick something up at my house. So he came out with a full liter bottle of what I thought. I thought, well, that's interesting. They said, Pepsi is clear over here. It's clear liquid. Charlie, it wasn't Pepsi. He had, he had been boiling potatoes <laughs> on the stove all day. And whatever that concoction was, kicked a bit of a punch, too. We've got Mr. Charles Pierce on the whole show tonight. Checkpoint Charlie on the Wall of Power Radio Bar. Stick around. we got a, one more set with Charlie coming up. If I had a hammer, I'd hammer in the morning. I'd hammer in the evening. All over this land I'd hammer out danger I'd hammer out a warning 
I hammer out love between my brothers and my sisters all over this land. If I had a bell, I'd ring it in the morning. I'd ring it in the evening all over this land. I'd ring out danger. I'd ring out a warning. I'd ring out love between my brothers and my sisters all over this land. If I had a song, if I had a song, I'd sing it in the morning. I'd sing it in the evening all over this land. I'd sing out danger. I'd sing out a warning. I'd sing out a Welcome back to the third set of the Wall and Power Radio Hour. We call these episodes with Charlie Pierce Checkpoint Charlie. Always such a pleasure having Charlie on. Charlie, I was just reading uh, uh, your your piece in Esquire recently about this Oklahoma, Oklahoma State Center, Nathan Dom, and this Bill 1837, which sounds about as Aurelian as it gets. Tell us about that. Oh, this is the guy in Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah. He wants to. He wants to. Uh, he wants to license uh, journalists, uh, which is, you know, the kind of thing that set off uh, the Stamp Act Rebellion in Boston, and you know, <laughs> ended very badly for George the Third. So he's actually, I mean, and it's not going to go anywhere. This guy is notorious down there for like producing. Uh, ridiculous, you know, laws that nobody votes for, not even the, you know, he's a crazy Republican that even crazy Republicans don't go along with. So I'm not concerned about it, but it's just astonishing that someone would even think of it. Yeah, it's 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 absurd and ob- obscene. Let's <clears throat> talk a little bit about, uh, you've written about uh, a Minnesota boy named Dean Phillips, who actually uh, I had at, played Novosibirsk, Russia, years ago, and I bumped into Dean before he became a politician. He was a friend of the guy that flew me over. He had a he had a blues and jazz club that I played at, so I got to know Dean a little bit. Wait a minute, bit. wait a minute, wait a minute. I got I got a, I got a call for a thirty second time out here. You played <laughs> Novosibirsk? Yeah. At, Man, at you place- need a better agent. <laughs> you know, it was actually phenomenal. It was a. Um, uh, it's the sister city of St. Paul, and oh, okay. uh, and uh, but that's not why I was there. My my buddy uh, had uh, uh, went to visit his brother in Moscow in the late '80s and found a place that he could buy hockey pucks for a penny. So he filled up about a dozen fifty-five gallon drums with hockey pucks and brought them back and sold them for like twenty cents a piece to somebody in Minneapolis. And he goes, well. Why am I doing hockey pucks when I do high-end cars? So he started bringing over high-end uh, luxury automobiles like Cadillacs and the like. Uh, was very successful. Met a woman who was from Novosibirsk, and he moved there uh, and ended up. Uh, he's back in Minneapolis now, but by the end he was he had like three or four restaurants and a wood shop, and the state gave him said, "Hey, you look like you know what you can do in the run, run the theater," but. Uh, 
his name was Eric Shogren, and he was a friend. He went to school with Dean Phillips. But Dean is, is what's what's uh, frustrating about Dean. His dad, Eddie Phillips, who is actually, you know that Eddie Phillips was dear Abby's son, right? Really? I didn't know yeah, that. Abigail Van Buren, that is uh, Dean Phillips' grandmother. Um, but Eddie Phillips was a real big uh, R&B and blues aficionado and actually gave a lot of money to help um, rebuild the Apollo Theater in Harlem, was very good friends with Alan Giroux. Uh But Dean has been, what the hell was that campaign about? What was he thinking? <laughs> That's a question, so, Charlie. Do you what do you think Dean Phillips was thinking? When he ran for president? Yeah. I I think he's being a nuisance. Yeah. I mean I think somebody either he himself or somebody near him uh filled his head with the notion that like Joe Biden wouldn't survive the campaign. Right. And that there would somehow be a, a democratic presidential primary. And then he got and, in, he couldn't get out. Yeah. Well, and then uh, there was a brief shining moment there where Steve Schmidt, uh, you know, lifelong uh, GOP uh, advocate and uh, uh, Dirty Tricks operative, hooked up with him, and he bailed, uh, I think, forever staining what was left to his credibility. But uh, what do you think now, when you're looking at, we're looking at 2024, obviously, Trump's going to run to some degree, but what do you think of the Joe Manchins and uh, the Dean Phillips and whoever else might be out there? Do you think there's uh, RFK Jr.? Is there a third-party challenge that's going to... Uh, no, there will, okay. there, will never, there will never be a third-party, third part, an effective third-party challenge in United States politics under our current system. Okay. It just won't happen. I don't care how bad things get. Uh it just first of all, if you're going to have a legitimate third party, you got to you got to run for something besides president. Yeah, you know you got to you got to run for town council. You got to run for state rep. You got to run for you know the House of Representatives. You can't just just say hey we've got a third party because we've got this really cool guy we're going to run for president. Yeah, but and there are just uh... too many. There are too many institutional roadblocks for mm-hmm. a successful third. If we didn't. I mean, the most successful third-party candidacy in my lifetime was George Wallace. Right. And, you know, I, I don't know that, that that's a great argument for third party. But, <laughs> and he didn't even come close. What? Uh, uh, you, you're a Massachusetts guy. What the hell? When did RFK Jr. go off the tracks? I don't know. Uh, I, I don't, you know, that's the, that's the end of the family I don't know very well. Uh, they, uh... You know, he, he, you know, he was a, you know, the, that whole clan, all of those kids, Bobby's kids, went off the trolley after he was killed. Hmm. Uh, you know, and David was, you know, a, you know, they had, they all, a lot of them had drug problems. David had drug problems and, you know, skied into a tree. Uh, Bobby was apparently completely unmanageable as a teenager. Hmm. Uh, you know, there were there were automobile accidents. Their, their mother Ethel was in, un, incapable. It, you know, there were there were like eleven of them. Yeah. And, you know, she was incapable of of handling it. And so 
you know, he was a troubled kid. Uh, you know, he got busted for heroin in an airplane bathroom. Wow. Uh, years ago. Uh, and he straightened himself out, or supposedly did. And, uh, you know, got involved in, like, the cleaning, like Pete Seeger, the cleaning up of the Hudson River. Yeah. He did a great job. I mean, he could have retired from public life right then and been one of the most famous environmentalists of the late 20th century. Yeah. But then, I don't know when, he got hooked into this anti-vax thing, and that that flipped the last wheel of the trolley off the rail. Yeah. Uh, well, to get, getting back, I was going to end that story, but uh, now that you brought up uh, Pete Seeger again, I interviewed Dar Williams, a uh, great folk singer from New England, uh, a couple years ago on the radio show. And she lived in uh, Hudson Valley, right up the road from Pete Seeger. And she told me one day she uh, she walked into the local hardware store and uh, saw Pete Seeger buying a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> Tell, hey, me, got... tell me she tell me she said it. <laughs> well, it's just the image. I mean, come on. It's you only get one of those in your lifetime. Oh, so we got... I did uh I did uh, that's funny. I, I know Dar. I've seen Dar in concert up here. She's great. Uh, she's a uh, she's a, she's a real union buster. Uh, not a union buster, but a union uh, supporter. Supporter. Yeah. See, in fact, uh, I we... saw a video I saw a video of her and Billy Bragg at some Woody Guthrie uh, tribute show where they all cool. sang Union Made. Yeah. Well, this is, uh, Billy Bragg, he's uh, uh, one of my heroes. And I, I opened his very first show at the 7th Street Entry in Minneapolis back in 1984 and kind of been friends with him ever since. Uh, he's got wrote a, wrote a great book on the history of Skiffle, uh, which I'm still kind of uh, going through when I'm reading my six other books. Say, we just got a minute or two left with Mr. Charlie Pierce. Let's talk about the team I'm putting my money on for the Super Bowl, the team I call Taylor's Team. <laughs> I just call this them Taylor's team. This is a great Super Bowl for making people's heads explode. You've got <laughs> the team represent. You've, you've got the team representing the gayest city in America <laughs> against against Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. <laughs> and you know because you know the way television, the way sports television works. This is going to be a Taylorathon through that oh, yeah. whole game, and she's got it. She's got a gig in Tokyo the night before. Wow. She's got to fly back from Tokyo uh, to, to Las Vegas. And uh, Tokyo to Las Vegas is probably a shuttle. Uh, but, you know, to get to the game. Somebody posited on, on uh, social media a few weeks ago, the perfect halftime show for this year's Super Bowl would be Taylor Swift performing with Jason uh, Kelsey dancing shirtless. Now oh, that's his brother. His brother does the show. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. He, that's what I'm saying. His yeah. brother did. Yeah. Well, then, his brother's, then of course, up, his brother's up there. His brother's up there in Buffalo, you know, in, in January with no shirt on, slamming <laughs> those Jenny Cream. <laughs> Charlie hey, I Pierce. gotta tell you, I've, I've got a new uh, a new musical enthusiasm. Who's that? What's that? Well, I actually, you know, once again, I'm probably at least five years late on this person. 
It's a woman named Ashley McBride. Oh, I've heard her name. What to tell us yeah, about she's her? Got, she's got a wonderful song called Gospel Night at the Strip Club. <laughs> she's kind of a she's kind of a a, a one woman semi folky drive by truckers. They're beautiful. Things about things about those parts those parts of the South where there aren't any magnolias growing. <laughs> I will see Ashley McBride. I am checking her out. Charlie Pierce, can you can we get a promise to do this monthly through twenty twenty four? Because my yeah, head will explode. Yeah, you know, give me some, give me some, you know, give me some, uh, you know, a heads up, and we can great. do this once a month. Sure. Absolutely. That'd be great because my head is going to explode if I can't talk to guys like you that are smarter than me that know what the hell is going on. But uh, like I said, we've had Charlie Pierce on for the whole show. I refer to him as my psychological morphine drip for all things political. Charlie, you have a great weekend, my brother, and uh, uh, look forward to seeing you in person. One oh. One more quick thing. I just talked to a friend of mine named Keith Sokola, Native American songwriter. He he just submitted, a, he's got a couple tunes. There's a new documentary coming out on Henry Boucher. I think it's called The Electric Indian, and it might be being I, produced by PBS. I, I've heard, you know, I mean, I hate, to, I hate to say it this way. I've heard the drums beating on that, on that one, uh, because I, as we know, Henry recently passed yeah and uh yeah i'm looking for if it's if it's really going to be on pbs i'm dying to see it i'll I'm keep I'll, I'll talk to keith and i will uh i will keep you posted on all the above charlie thanks so much for being on the wall power radio hour checkpoint charlie check it out monthly here on am 950 thanks brother have a great night always a pleasure my friend take care it's gospel night at the strip club i've been sleeping in my car I lead the singing service with a half-assed tune guitar. Brandy's singing back up while Lonnie's tending bar. Just waiting for more sinners to show up. Crystal just started dancing. She's always right on point. She don't mind if you don't tip her as long as you slip her a joint. And Patty's got an upper. Get her through her shift. Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. The show was produced by Paul Metza, engineered by the great Patrick Lilia. We'd like to thank our guest, Checkpoint Charlie Pierce. He's promised to be on once a month now during this tumultuous 2024 election season. You can find more about me at paulmetza.com. If you get up to Duluth, I play at the Blackwater Lounge every Wednesday from 6 to 8 in downtown Duluth. And like my dad used to tell me, remember to be kind and make someone happy.